We continue our study in the life of Abraham. We're entitling this the gospel according to Abraham. We come to Genesis chapter 22 today. And if you ever thought that Christianity or the Bible was mundane, rated G, and pretty prepackaged and uninteresting, then you haven't read much of the Bible and you definitely have not read Genesis 22, which Dan Allender one time called it the scariest chapter in the Bible. Let's get to it. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. It's important to keep in mind the context here. Genesis 21, Isaac is born, the long-awaited promised son of Abraham and Sarah. A number of years pass, and we believe that Isaac, to be at this point in Genesis 22, to be a teenager. Keeping in mind, long-promised son, long-awaited, that promise was granted very late in Abraham and Sarah's life. And then, years later, Genesis 22 happens. Stand with me, if you will, for this narrative this morning. After these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand on the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar. And there he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I surely... Multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The author Max Lucado tells a story of a man named John Blanchard who in the middle of the 20th century was in a library in Florida just looking at different books, came across one book and was very intrigued by the contents of this book, though he was not intrigued by the actual text from the book that the author had written. He was actually intrigued apparently by what had been written in the margins of this book by a woman named Hollis Maynell. Her name was in the front of the book. John Blanchard was intrigued by her notations in the book, so much so that he sought her out and found her, found that she lived in New York City, and they started to do a correspondence together via letters. And they had hoped to meet. He asked for a picture of her. She denied sending him a picture, wanted him to be intrigued with who she was, apart from what she looked like. They had decided to be able to meet one day in New York City, and then Mr. Blanchard was called off to war. In World War II, he was called off to Europe, and so he did that right when this budding romance was about to hit its momentous stride. They keep in touch, write each other while he's overseas, and then on his return, they set a meeting at Grand Central Station in New York, and she tells him, "You will know." he says, well, how am I going to know who you are since I've never seen a picture. And she said, I will be the woman with a rose. You will find me. And he says, great. And so he sets out for Grand Central Station, and he is excited about this meeting that has been long coming. And then, in his own words, a young woman was coming toward me, her figure long and slim, her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears, Her eyes were as blue as flowers, her lips and chin had a gentle firmness, and her pale green suit looked like she was springtime coming alive. I started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice this woman was not wearing a rose. As I moved, a small provocative smile turned her lips. Going my way, sailor, she said. Almost uncontrollably, I made one more step towards her, and then I saw Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump. Her thick ankled feet thrust into low-heeled shoes. The girl in the green suit was quickly getting away. I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow that woman, yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned and upheld me, and there she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. I did not hesitate. My fingers gripped the small, worn blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and must be ever grateful." I squared my shoulders, saluted, and held out the book to the woman, even though while I spoke, I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maynell. I'm so glad that you would meet me. Could I take you to dinner? 
The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is about, son, she answered. But the young lady in the green suit who just walked by begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And she said, if you were to come and ask my name, she's at the big restaurant around the corner. She would love to meet you for dinner. She said it was some sort of test. I don't know how you would have done on that test. What we have in Genesis 22 is a test. It's a test not as quaint or warm as that test. It's a test that's honestly terrifying. It's a test that's disturbing. It's a test that is perplexing, confusing, and it's a test that really makes us question, who is this God and what is he doing? Why would he do this? The overarching thing I want us to see from the test in Genesis chapter 22 simply is this call. It's a call to walk in faith and to rest in God's promises. Genesis 22 is a call to walk in faith and to rest in God's promises. Easier said than done. Genesis 22 is scary for us on any number of levels, which we will be able to digest and dissect a little bit this morning, but surely you understand one thing from the outset of this particular narrative in this story, which is not fiction. You get a sense that God can ask anything he wants of his children. And that's frightening. It's frightening to know that God can ask, and in fact, indeed, will ask anything of those who know him. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, God says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half-hearted measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones that you think are wicked. I want the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My will will become your will. Well, in Genesis 22, God is asking for everything from Abraham and Encouragingly, what we'll see in Genesis 22 is that God gives Abraham everything. He's calling Abraham and therefore he's calling us to walk in faith and he's calling us to rest in his promises. I want to look at this in a little more detail as we examine in the beginning the fact that God tests. Secondly, that God calls or commands. And thirdly, that God provides. So if we're called to walk in faith and rest in the promises of God, I want us to see in Genesis 22, I want us to see God testing his servant, Abraham. I want us to see God calling 
or commanding Abraham, and I want us to see God providing for Abraham. And I'll simply say this, while this story is not common or normative or characteristic in our lives, the overarching idea is to be normative in our lives. Our lives are to be characterized by walking in faith and resting in promises. And as we seek to walk in faith and rest in God's promises, we will be tested, we will be called, and we will be provided for. And so let's see what was going on with Abraham and see what we can find for ourselves. Verse 1, after these things, that is, after God gave the long-awaited son that he had promised forever seemingly ago to Abraham and to Sarah, in his teenage years, now God says, I've got another plan for that long-awaited son. And we read it in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham responded, here I am. I don't know if you noticed in the reading of the narrative, but here I am from Abraham is said three times. There's special significance anytime the scriptures repeat something thrice. Abraham responds with, here I am. He's ready, by God's grace, to walk in faith and to rest in his promises. And he affirms that by saying, here he is. It's a test, not unlike the test that God put his servant Job through. Equally disturbing perplexing and questioning, maybe even a defeater for some of you as it relates to putting your trust in God. And that's understandable. When you read the story of Job, you have to wonder what in the world is going on here. Genesis 22 has a very very similar reaction to it, but we see that God is testing Abraham. In fact, the text reveals later that the primary purpose of God's testing of Abraham is to see if he would fear God. God wanted to see if Abraham would really trust him. God wanted to see if Abraham really believed God's promises. God wanted to see if Abraham was willing to sacrifice everything. Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, says God's plan And his ways of working out his plan are frequently beyond our ability to fathom and understand. We must learn to trust when we don't understand. God's plan and his ways of working out his plan are frequently beyond our ability to fathom and understand. We must learn to trust even when we don't understand. So God tests Abraham, but God also calls Abraham. Verse 2, if you'll draw your attention to that, he said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It was important and necessary for sacrifices to be made on behalf of sin, period. Because God's a holy God, and because of God's holy God, because of his holiness, he demands sacrifice to be made, and Abraham, like every person, is in debt. And this, in Genesis 22, is God calling on that debt. He calls on it in a dramatic way by taking, arguably, the thing that Abraham holds most dear, 
And I think it's important for us to be cautious on one hand to read too much, and this is true any in Scripture, our own experiences into the Scriptures, to read into what Abraham was thinking or feeling. The text doesn't really tell us that. While on the other hand, he's human. He's a father. Like, what would have even felt like for Abraham to hear the words, your son coupled with a burnt offering. Can you imagine? That's what Abraham heard because that's what God was calling him to. Abraham actually had a dynamic with God that was not dissimilar to this. We see in Genesis chapter 12 that, Abraham, that God called Abraham. He called Abraham to something difficult there. He called him to leave, to go. To leave what? His land. To leave everything he knew. The overarching call from Genesis chapter 12 is for God calling Abraham to leave everything that was comfortable. By the way, I believe that God is consistently calling all people to leave places of comfort. Sometimes that's literal and physical, geographical even. Oftentimes it's relational. It's always spiritual and emotional. God calls us to go and to leave. That's what he asked in Genesis chapter 12, but in Genesis 22, he's asking him something else. He's asking for something actually even more dear to him than his comfort. He's asking and commanding and calling Abraham to give up his son. Reminds me of Cormac McCarthy's genius work, The Road. Cormac McCarthy of Knoxville, Tennessee. Something that you might not know, a lot of people don't know. We ought to be very proud about the fact that one of America's greatest writers is from Knoxville. Cormac McCarthy in The Road is this post-apocalyptic, Armageddon-ish journey of a father and a son through a post-apocalyptic world and all the different dangers and challenges, confusing moments and perplexities that exist on that. And one of the things that stands out to me about McCarthy in The Road, apart from the fact that it is incredible writing, I don't know how many of you are readers. I mean, we all read to some degree. If nothing else, just get the road and read the first page just so you can recognize good writing. I'm afraid so much of what we read these days is it might be helpful, but it's not very good. It takes you one page on the road and you're like, oh, this is a different thing. But the thing I love about the narrative is the relationship between the father and the son in the road. And at one point, here's an excerpt that McCarthy writes. The father says to the son, my job is to take care of you. I was appointed to do that by God. I will kill anyone who touches you. Do you understand? What would you do if I died? The son asked. If you died, I would want to die too. So you could be with me? Yes. So I could be with you. Okay. Surely that's what Abraham felt in Genesis 22. 
when God is asking Abraham to make this ultimate sacrifice, what Abraham had to be thinking is, why not me? Or if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go with you. The obedience that we see from Abraham in this text is nothing short of admirable, compelling, and amazing. I'll tell you this, the obedience that we see in Abraham from Genesis chapter 22 is empowered and enabled by God's promises. So before, and I'll speak more about this towards the end, before we go any, uh, down, before we go down the road of making this sermon about Abraham, be like Abraham, as if Abraham is the hero of this text, the Bible never calls us ultimately to be like any other person other than Jesus, and God is the hero of every text. However, we have to recognize the obedience that is enabled by Abraham's belief in God's promises is nothing short of amazing. The text even gives us the specific detail that right after this command and calling, it tells us that Abraham rose early the next morning and made these preparations because God called and he commanded and Abraham responded. He responded by God's grace. You know, a slogan that came out within the last few years worldwide, I guess really provoked by the pandemic is, we can do hard things. Well, what Abraham had to do was harder. And he did it by God's grace, empowered by God's promises. And he did not do it like the little engine who could. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. He did it with fear and trembling, walking in faith, resting in God's promises. And we read in verse 8, And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now don't let verse 8 fool us into thinking that Abraham knew what was going to happen. I think we have to conclude that Abraham did not know what was going to happen, but we have to conclude that, God, that Abraham did know that God would provide. He just didn't know how God would provide. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, there's an amazing picture back into this Genesis 22 story that's summarized by basically saying this, Abraham believed that God would provide even if, even if God's provision meant the resurrection of Isaac. Read Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. So Abraham was able to act in obedience, believing that God would provide, but don't start to conclude that Abraham knew how God was going to provide and don't think that Abraham knew that he actually was not going to have to sacrifice his son. What he knew was God was going to provide. And one of the ways in which we believe that Abraham must have thought God would provide is he will resurrect my son after I slaughter him. I mean, the verbs in this. Can you imagine the dramatic pause in this scene at the moment, which is real? Abraham raises a knife in the air. What would that have been like? God calls, God tests, God calls, and then ultimately God provides. Verse 11 has a very important word. 
We see this word throughout the scriptures, and it's a small word. It's an important one. It's the first word in your English translation in verse 11. What is it? But. But. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Stop. Abraham. Abraham. And he said once again, Here I am. And then Abraham looked up for the second time. Did you catch that in the beginning when God tested and commanded Abraham? Abraham looked up to the mountain where he was going to sacrifice his son. Can you imagine what that would have felt like when you look up to the mountain and you conclude, that's where I'm going to kill my son. But the text gives us the same phrase again in verse 12 and following. Abraham looked up. Again, and what did he see? A ram caught in the thorns and in the thicket. But God, but God provided. I want to close uh, by reflecting on two things, both meant to have clear application for us. Keeping in mind, we're called to walk in faith. Rest in God's promises. God tests us, God calls us, and God provides for us. Here's a question that I find pretty intriguing. What do you think Isaac learned from his father that day on the mountain? And I really do at this moment want to speak specifically to fathers, to men. You know, it's a hard thing. I was reflecting on this a little bit on how I want to say this. Um, It's hard culturally to speak today in gender-specific ways, but it's important. Abuse does not negate proper use, and of course there's been great abuse in chauvinistic tendencies in one way or another, but there's no way that I think that we can divorce the reality from this text as what we're talking about here is a father and a son. Does it apply to mothers and sons and mothers and daughters? Of course, but Abraham's a man and Isaac's a son. And so for a moment, I want to appeal to men and to fathers, and I want to ask this question to myself as well. What did Isaac learn from his father that day? I'll tell you what Isaac learned from Abraham that day, and it's what I want my son and my daughter to learn from me, and I think it's what you want as well. Isaac learned that his dad loved God more than anyone or anything else. Abraham modeled, and therefore Isaac learned that his dad does not run away from hard things. He learned that his dad believes in the promises of God. And as a result of believing in the promises of God, Isaac learned that his dad was obedient and that his dad was faithful and that his dad was willing to suffer and that his dad woke up early and followed the call and the command of God. What is your son learning from you? What is your daughter learning from you. Did you know the thing that your kids need from you the most, the thing my kids need from me the most, is our holiness 
and what Isaac got from Abraham on Mount Moriah, that day was his dad's holiness, his dad's faithfulness, his dad's obedience, his dad's willingness to run towards, not away from hard things, his dad's willingness to engage, his dad's willingness to believe the gospel, his dad's willingness to rest in the promises of God. What are you giving your son? reality is all of us are giving our sons and our daughters and other people around us things that are incompatible with what God's called us to. It's not that we want that. It's not that we relish on that. Oftentimes, in fact, we work hard to ignore the ways in which we're not holy or obedient or faithful. It's not so much that it's malicious but we're still culpable. So what? Well, you remember when I said the moral of this story can't be, be like Abraham? Even though I just said what Abraham taught Isaac that day is amazing. But you know what? It's a crushing burden if I leave you with, you know, dad, especially men, go home Try harder to be like Abraham. That's a crushing burden. But surely you understand that this story points to something else, right? Have you picked up the phrases in this story that seemingly point to another son? Did you get the point in the story where it says, Your son, your only son? Does that sound similar to John 3.16? Or did you catch the point where Isaac carried his own wood. You know what this story points to? It points to another sacrifice. It points to another son who carried his own wood. It was called the cross. And the reason it's important for us to know that son and for us to know about that wood and for us to know about that sacrifice is that we're not faithful and we're not holy. And we aren't always obedient answering God's call. And so we need someone who is always obedient. Who does always answer God's call. Who actually is the sacrifice himself. He does not wait for another sacrifice. And something amazing about the whole purpose of Genesis 22 might just be that God wants us to understand that he understands what it's like. To actually sacrifice without a ram in the thicket, his one and only son. Why? Because he loves you. There was no ram in the thicket because there was a lamb on the cross. His one and only son. Who saved us from the fact that we're not obedient or faithful or the men, or the dads, or the wives, or the moms that we want to be. And through his sacrifice, he actually enables us to become that which God has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story. We thank you for the way that you graciously help us navigate through it. I pray that you would help us to understand your truth more deeply. 
Help us to rest more fully in your promises and in your provision for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.